Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. That you are. You are definitely listening to the Outdoor Drive Podcast, episode 169 with Mr. Tracy Breen from, from I, I don't even know, just Tracy Breen. So, well, welcome back. This is your boy, East Coast Trev, joined with my good buddy, Mr. Madman Mardik. Good morning, Vietnam. Oh, don't do that. I just don't. always, I've always wanted to do it, and I just felt like the time was right. You know, it's kind of funny that <laughs> Funny, it's so funny that you just did that because I would have to deal with that every single morning. Captain Seth would do that every morning. Really? I never knew Good that. Good morning, Vietnam. And uh, I'm like, dude, just shut the fuck <laughs> up, bro. That's so funny. Like, stop. Like, why are you doing that? But that's it is funny. What it I didn't is. know that. I just yeah. wanted to do it. I had the urge to do it one time. You just felt like it. I'm never going to do it again, but well, that's I good. got it in my system. Yeah, I'm going to have to mute your mic if you do that thing again. I will never do it All again. All right, good. I'm, like, I'm glad you got that out here. Felt good. Yeah, it's all right. <laughs> so what's up, dude? I'm I'm asking the questions here. No, no. no. All right. Must <laughs> with seats? No, no. I you got you took my notepad, bro. We don't need the notepad. I know we don't need the notepad. <laughs> Should we break off and get a word from our sponsors yeah, real screw quick? It. Let's just Let's, do that. I, it's my favorite part. Yeah, it's my favorite part. Oi, you. Yeah, you. Put down that mug of Joe. And get your lips wrapped round one of these bad boys. That's right. Nor'easter game calls. Give it a blow. Nor'easter game calls. Get them in close. This winter, use Huntworth's Heat Boost products for impeccably warm body parts, guaranteed. Get more for less with Huntworth. Vital Ground Outdoors. For all your climbing hardware needs. Amstel Mobile Hunting redefined with Vital Ground Outdoors. New Era Archery, home of the Zeus Broadheads as well as the Hera. Let the Zeus loose with New Era Archery. I would just like to thank our generous sponsors. Back over to you, Trevor. My man, always killing it. I, I get it every time. This is the second episode that we've done that, and I absolutely love I'm I'm I, in love with it, bro. I got a sudden craving for a nice cup of tea. <laughs> Yo, funny you said that, right? So crazy, crazy you say that. And, and in America, we don't drink a lot of – I mean, I'm a tea drinker myself personally, but like uh, Manish, he, Manny, he, he drinks tea all the time. Mm. So uh, when I had approached him about doing the sponsorships for us – 
um he's like well i need to finish a, a cup of tea first and i could just imagine like and he sends me a picture of it and it's a do not tread on me yellow oh, tea and awesome. i'm like that is the most badass teacup i've ever american seen american cup of tea i've ever <laughs> seen that's what i'm saying dude like boston tea party yeah. type stuff like my man dude i love man yeah. So, anyways, but he sends me fire on Instagram. He is, always hit me up in the DMs, just sharing reels to me. Always uh, got me rolling. I, I, you know, one thing I know we talked about this off air, but I definitely want to go over there and visit and just see what the world is like in that outdoor world. Well, I, I mean, I haven't told Sarah yet, but she's been bugging me to go there for years, and I'm like, I ain't freaking going there. And now I kind of want to go there. Yeah, should make a full trip out of it. Yeah, we'll, we'll go visit him. Probably turn it over to the our buddy, uh, Mr. Mike Salter, and get what's going on in the world of news. What do you say, buddy? Send it. All right, guys. Why don't we buckle up and see what's going on in the world of news with Mr. Mike Salter? Hey everyone, we're going to start this one off in Arizona, where recent changes to the statutes and rules that govern the state's their sale of over-the-counter non-permit tags for archery deer will affect both resident and non-resident hunters. For non-residents, uh, the changes uh, include limiting the non-resident non-permit archery tags to 10% of the average total sales of archery non-permit tags for the most recent five years. Uh, this mean takes effect in 2023 and means that 2,890 tags will be available for 2023 with sales starting at 12 a.m. on December 1st. No additional tags will be allotted, so when they're gone, they're gone. Uh, these tags are only available online and will not be sold at third-party licensed dealers. Uh, resident hunters will be allowed to purchase non-permit tags at third-party dealers, and there are no restrictions for residents on the total number of archery deer uh, non-permit tags. For all hunters, uh, a valid 2023 um, archery non-permit tag is required, to hunt all open season, um, to hunt the full open season in 2023, and harvest limits will now <clears throat> apply to all archery deer hunts in Arizona. This means that uh, the limit, it, when the limit is reached for a unit, the unit will close uh, to further archery deer hunting at sundown on the Wednesday following uh, the limit being reached. So don't wait to get those tags and be aware of units being shut down. Uh, additionally, Arizona Game and Fish is asking hunters to help with uh, chronic wasting disease monitoring uh, by submitting deer and elk heads, especially bucks and bulls, for CWD testing. Uh, the heads can be submitted to any department office statewide between 8 and 5 on Monday, uh, Monday through Friday, and they are asking all hunters to call in advance of drop-off. Uh, the prefer preferred method of storage is to put the head in a heavy-duty trash bag and keep it cold or frozen uh, until sampling. The department is also requesting hunters to provide um, accurate hunter information, uh, name and telephone number, and harvest information, including hunt number, game management unit, state, and license number. Uh, now to Vermont, where the Fish and Wildlife Department has scheduled a public informational meeting on draft changes to the state's trapping regulations. The meeting will be held on Tuesday, November 29th from 6.30 to 9 p.m. at White River Valley High School. Uh, the proposed changes are in response to Act 159, which... Uh, directed the department to identify ways to improve the welfare of trapped animals. Uh, this meeting is an opportunity for the public to provide input before the commissioner advances a proposal to the Fish and Wildlife Board for deliberation. The meeting will begin with presentations about current research and trapping best management practices uh, and uh, from staff who inform the draft changes. 
Uh, there will be uh, breakout sessions and groups for the public to voice their opinions on the proposed changes. Uh, there will be a formal public comment period when the board begins to the, uh, its official process as well. Uh, but this is a chance for sportsmen and women to voice concerns and be sure our opposition will be there uh, voicing theirs, so attend if you can. Uh, now to some national news where the public employees for environmental responsibility have filed a petition to ban the use of lead ammunition and fishing tackle on all properties managed by the National Park Service. Uh, according to the petition, that includes more than uh, 51 million acres open to hunting, which is more than 60% of the land area in, in the national park system. Uh, the petition cites that uh, the rule which began banning lead, ammo, and tackle on national wildlife refuges, which I reported on recently, uh, but this would uh, be a complete ban. The petition is also highly dismissive of any claims that lead bans will reduce hunting and fishing participation. Uh, so something to keep an eye on as that petition moves forward. Uh, now some good news. So to Maryland, where the Department of Natural Resources is once again calling on all wildlife and cooking enthusiasts to submit their favorite recipes for its Wild Maryland online cookbook, this time for the holiday season. Uh, the department encourages hunters, anglers, and foragers to submit their best holiday recipes, along with photos of their dishes featuring Maryland species. Submissions must include a list of the required ingredients, easy-to-follow preparation instructions, and feature a species found in Maryland. Uh, adding a few words about the history of the recipe is also encouraged. Submissions will be accepted through the holiday season uh, and can be submitted to recipes.dnr at maryland.gov. So pretty cool opportunity there. Uh, now a huge congratulations to all the successful youth hunters uh, out there this season, and especially in Ohio, where the two-day youth deer season uh, saw 9,515 deer harvested, which includes over 5,000 bucks and is up from the 2021 harvest of 7,632 and over the three-year average of 6,559. So congratulations to all those hunters and a big thanks to everyone getting uh, the youth hunters in the field. Lastly, to Colorado, where the state record brook trout, which has stood since 1947, has been topped. Uh, Matt Smiley topped the previous record of 7.63 7 pounds with a massive 8-pound, 9-ounce brook trout, which measured 26 and a quarter inches uh, and had a girth of 16 inches. So congratulations to Matt on an absolute giant brookie. Um, lastly, I want to wish everyone and their families a happy Thanksgiving. And as always, if you have any news to send to me, please do so. Uh, you can reach out to me at Mike Salter on Facebook or Bearded underscore Bowhunter21 on Instagram. And with that, enjoy the rest of your ride. Yeah, man. I don't know. I'm really looking forward to, you know, this week and in, in, in the rut. I mean, we've probably – it's it's going to be fire. Mm-hmm. There might actually – you know, in podcast, in podcast land, it's actually going to be one of the firest weeks of the – or no, in the, the real world. By the time this drops, there might be some serious bloodshed. Serious. Yeah. Because it's about to get, get real. Yeah. You know, we had dropped last week um, – the podcast with Sarah and her podcast, and we had talked about what was going to happen. Mm -hmm. And I think I, I don't see any different happening this week because no. it's going to be it's yeah. going to be serious stuff. Because by the time this drops, this is dropping what the twenty fourth. Yeah, I mean fourteenth, fifteenth, sixteenth is incredible weather coming. I mean, like gun season open. Yeah, low twenties, high forty seven, yeah. I think, and then gun season rolls in the sixteenth, and it's just going to be. 
fucking insanity. Yeah. So things things have now kind of really kicked off for us, and we're actually at the end of the rut type, you know, that heavy. Oh, by the time this drops. Yeah, yeah the heavy, yeah, yeah. the heaviness of it. So I, I don't know. We had a really good conversation with um, – with Tracy throughout this whole entire thing about kind of moon phases yeah. and rod and stuff. So you guys will be able to hear that, but it was definitely a good time. And it was, it was a, it was a great time to have Tracy on and talk about everything and the things that he does and the things that he's been through a stand up guy. Awesome guy. Yeah. yeah. I think the, the, the part of the podcast that I enjoyed the most was getting his side of things on that just keeping your head down and grinding and, and doing the work and going the extra mile, which is something we we don't uh, seek out when we get guests. Right. But it just seems like looking back, like you're Tyler Forbes, you're beyond the boundary guys, Jake Bennett on his elk hunt. Like mm -hmm. there's been a pattern lately of guys that just go the extra mile, be that 10 percenter and put in the extra work and, and get rewarded for it. And Tracy has his own spin on that with, yeah, on the on the deer hunting side of things, but just life in general mm -hmm. and your every in you know in and out everyday life and in your work and in your uh, in your career of just you know just putting in that extra work. And it was like really cool to hear it from Tracy with a different spin on it. You know, you know, and, and one of the things that we kind of like in life, like there's always somebody else that's worse off than you that has to grind a little bit harder, mm. you know, and Tracy's one of those guys, man, just yeah. grinds it out and does what he needs to do. I think one of my favorite parts of it, honestly, was the fall hunting with the dog. To, yeah. Dude, I, I we wish might have I had to try no, that. Absolutely. I would love to link up with somebody who has a dog and be able to do something like that. But the thing is, it's during our rut, man. Is it that late? I was I was kind of no, hoping it was like fall. So so I mean, it like starts in October. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And dude, like I mean, unless do like a double whammy like in Ohio, kill a buck and go, you know, one of those we'll types of things. But it, yeah. I wish that I had known more about the 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 fall turkey hunting of Tracy and be able to listen, you know, kind of pull more of that into this podcast of what it actually is. I didn't know he was that hardcore into it. Yeah, but I think that's def – I think we definitely – and you'll figure this out when you hear it um, – I think it definitely sets up for a follow-up episode for sure. with Tracy and then maybe even somebody else from that uh, organization. organization will do a full episode on just Turkey that because it's definitely and... very interesting. Mm -hmm. So No, it's definitely cool. cool. I, it It's it's a great podcast, but we don't really have too much to talk about. No, in, you know in what this... I was thinking, though? Because we're in the middle of the grind of the rut right now, and, mm -hmm. like, you know, I've pulled a couple all-day sits, back-to-back -back days, and, like, yeah, I'm not worn out yet, but, you know, you're getting to that point yeah. where it's like, you know, you're going to start getting tired. And I was thinking, like, dude, we need like a like a like a Goggins version of deer hunting. You know what I mean? Like that. Like, who's that motivational speaker to just keep you motivated every day? You know what I mean? Like, oh, could, yeah. could you just imagine like David Goggins? Like, I woke up this morning. I felt my, my lady next to me in my bed. I didn't want to get up, but you got to get after it, bitch. They ain't gonna kill themselves. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. Like you just gotta get after it. Go out there and hunt in the rain. Yeah. Be a man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but no, man. I mean, it's that time of year where it's real freaking easy. Just roll over and go back yes. to bed, and it's just like, you know, I talked about it last week. Like I pulled an all nighter checking mm -hmm. a deer, and like I'm like, I can't go to bed now. If I go to bed now, I'm not gonna get up. Right. So it's like you just you just gotta you just gotta go. And I mean, like for us. I mean, our hunting season has been going on for a while. Like, I started in Ohio almost over a month ago. 
and it's been going steady since then. And before that was fishing season. So it like never stopped. You went stopped. from fishing season to a uh-huh. two-week bear hunt. Back to sick, fishing. Sicka. Yeah. And then rolled right back into Ohio. Mm-hmm. And then came home for the rut here. And been going ever since. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of calmed down for me now because, I, I mean, I've been a little bit more lackadaisical than being on the trip. But still, you're mm. still out there hunting all the time. I haven't done an all-day sit in Connecticut yet. No? No. I've done two or three. And I kind of... I, I, I will this week, but I haven't really had the... You know, well, last week. I I haven't really had that oomph to want to do it yet because it's getting 70 degrees in the middle of the day. Yeah, I had a couple good days. Uh, I forget the dates, but they were nice cold days, and I was like in a good rut funnel on the edge of bedding, and I pulled some all-day sits, and honestly, they didn't really pan out. They were It was like all my action was mm-hmm. first hour of daylight. Um, I did. I forgot to mention in the last podcast, uh, so it's kind of old news, but I actually had a pretty cool encounter with like a, I don't know, it was probably like a year and a half, six-pointer, six but uh, he came in. Uh, kind of behind me, bedded, um, not bedding, but um, eating on on the hillside, and yeah. I was just watching him and filming him, you know, and all that stuff. And uh, he bedded down forty yards from me, which I've had it happen before with like spike bucks and stuff like that. But this is probably the biggest buck that I've had bed down that close to me, and um, it worked out perfect because I was in like a quadruple trunk tree, so I had a ton of cover between me and him. And I sat there and watched him bed for an hour and a half. Um, at one point. The wind shifted a little bit, but it didn't shift bad on me, but it did shift. And uh, like clockwork, man, he stands up, stretches his legs, scratches his balls a little bit, turned around, and laid back down facing another direction. So it was, like, really cool to see how he was bedded one way, facing a certain direction on the wind. And when that wind changed, he got up and faced a different direction to keep that wind at his back, which was it was really cool to That's see. That's wild. You know, everyone talks about it. Everybody knows mm-hmm. how a deer beds on the leeward side with the wind at his back and all this stuff. But, like, I literally got to watch a buck shift in his bed when the wind shifted. That was, it was really, to keep it it was that really cool, yeah. So it's the same as jay hooking into scrapes or into bedding yeah. and stuff like that. Like yeah. you don't it's, you you understand it, but you never see it. It's common knowledge, mm-hmm. but if you've never seen it, it's all hearsay. Yeah. Oh, this is, Dan Infolt says they do this, or so and so says they do this. Well, when you see it happen before your eyes, you're like, son of a bitch, they really do it. It's not a myth. That's how you know? they do it, right? So that was cool. No, oh, that's definitely awesome, and, and that's how you learn, and that's what keeps you well versed in in the subject. Mm. Oh, speaking of turkeys, too, I forgot about this. I heard my first fall gobble the other day. I had never heard one before. I know they do it, but uh, yeah. I'm sitting in my tree stand, and I, it started out with some tree yelps. And, um, like, Claire's From day, a gobbler? Well, tree I yelps? I or? don't know. I'm not a good enough turkey yeah, yeah. to know that. But I heard, you know, I, there were definitely turkeys waking up. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, that's cool. And then, then a freaking gobbler hammered off, like, three times. So I was like, oh, that's cool. Like, I've never heard a gobbler in the fall. fall. Um, Have you ever seen a hen a fall, uh, a hen strut in the fall? Uh uh-uh. uh I had like oh frig it's probably three four years ago on top of this ridge a lot of turkeys in this place and uh, they were all down and it was poults and poults and uh, hens and they're strutting. No shit. Yeah, like the young ones and stuff. Like I guess it's a dominance thing. Okay. Um, between the birds, I guess. Oh, no I, shit. I just got to see it. It was pretty cool. But Something uh, different. But anyway, so this was on one of my all day sets. This was it was my first all day set. I had some real good encounters with some deer that morning. But uh, at one point, uh, I had some deer coming in with the turkey, a lone turkey, a lone hen. So yeah, I'm watching. I actually filmed it. Two does, 
a turkey and then a small buck chasing <laughs> and then the turkey disappeared. They were all together and- though. Kinda, just yeah, hanging out. You know, cool. it was like Bambi or some shit. Yeah. Like they're watching like Bambi on Ice or something. But anyways, all day sit. Right, I must have seen this freaking turkey five times that day, and I'm in a pinch point, you <laughs> yeah. know, for deer. And here comes this turkey, goes by me, right, disappears. I'm like, all right, well, that was a little bit of action, right? So a little while later, you know, a couple hours later, I was like, oh, what's that? That's that damn turkey again. Here it comes, goes by me again into the bedding. So I was like, oh, that was cool again, you know. Couple hours later, this turkey's just pacing back and forth all day. And all I'm right, like, Walt Disney. Yeah, it was pretty cool. So I was like, "Damn, don't you know ter- Thanksgiving's right around the corner?" But yeah, you, you better, better be watch careful. Out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Nothing so, better than a wild turkey on Thanksgiving. I yeah, guess. something a little different. Yeah, have to call Brockett and put that thing in the plucker. Yeah, he'd do it for me. Hey, Madman, is there uh, is there a ton of killers corners this week or what? Are you kidding me, dude? I have. A freaking pile of them. I never in a million years thought, you know, when we first started doing this, I thought it would be like, you know, three, four, five a week or whatever. I did not ever anticipate November coming. And we just got a bunch of savage killers on our group, I guess. So what did you What did you honestly think was going to happen? I mean, in I, all reality. I'm not surprised. I just, I just wasn't prepared, I guess, is... I think it's honestly an amazing thing that we've built this community of a family in the Outdoor Drive group. For you guys that haven't been over there, um, if you guys are on Facebook, The Outdoor Drive, uh, just hit that in the search button. It's actually a group page. We have The Outdoor Drive podcast, which is our homepage for The Outdoor Drive, but the group page, this is where the Killer's Corners come from. If you want to be featured in the Killer's Corner on a weekly um, a weekly shout out on Instagram, Facebook, and also a weekly shout out here on the podcast. Send it over to Madman Mardik. So why don't you take it away, bud? Yeah, I mean this is a long list here. I think I'm gonna. I, 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 I probably have 50 on the list. We're gonna Jeez. go through about half of them real quick. So I'll try to be quick. Not try to disrespect anybody if you think I'm uh, skipping over you too fast. But uh, we got John P. Stafford uh, with a couple wood ducks. Greg Andrews' brother-in-law, Robert Neville, shot a 219-pound main seven-pointer. Wow. Tom Oligio got a couple pheasants and a giant carrot. Oh, I can't forget about the carrot. No, it was a, did you see that carrot? That was a giant was a carrot. Freaking booner. Yep. Some, some uh, people would love that carrot. Yeah. Travis, Travis Bailey, 620-pound Massachusetts public land black bear with the muzzle loader. That's an amazing bear. I want to take a two Ooh. seconds on that. I know that this killer's corner is going to be long, but that is a bear that I think we need to have on the podcast and just have a story about because that is an incredible bear, and I think it's going to break some records for that state, honestly. Yeah, we should reach out to him. For sure. Uh, it shouldn't be too hard to get a hold of. No. Uh, Alex Plue. And his buddy, I do not know his buddy's name, they doubled up on some Kansas bucks. Uh, Herman Herrera, uh, Montana, Montana mule deer. He's from what, all, always outdoors? Always outdoors, yeah. They Seems like a good group of guys over there. I don't really know them too much, but they're doing their thing. Shout out to them. Uh, Kyle Tripp got a Veterans Day buck. I love hunting Veterans Day, man. It's mm, always a good day to be out there. For sure. Shot some deer on Veterans Day. Uh, Kaylee Sandoval, uh, got her first buck. That's, uh, that's Lane's girlfriend. And, uh, 
at the time of this recording, uh, that YouTube video just dropped uh, like an hour and a half ago. Yeah, yesterday. Uh, yeah. Uh, Dominic Sheets, he took a 26-hour road trip to Iowa to hunt seven hours, and he ended up coming home with his uh, biggest buck to date. He's part of the WCB group. Yep. Yeah, good dude over there. Uh, Jason Chowanick. Uh, a couple of dogs. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Huh? He's a Connecticut boy. Oh, yeah. Yep. yep. Uh, Chowanick. Our girl, our girl Heather MK got a six-pointer. I know she's been working really hard with two jobs and all that stuff, so congratulations to her, and don't forget to get over there and vote for her in the, uh, what is it? Big Heroes. Big game. Uh, yeah. Um, we'll put that in the show notes as usual. Uh, Wes Ramsey shot a opening day buck and then his nephew Lane shot, uh, an opening day, uh, deer as well in Indiana. And, uh, we got a t-shirt heading over to Lane. So make sure you put that in your notes. Um, Gary Rivard, congratulations on your buck. Sam Selden uh, posted up his – he actually has three Michigan public land deer, so that's uh, that's no easy feat there, yeah, so congratulations to him. That's an accomplishment. Uh, Brian Bednar's 14-year-old daughter shot herself a nice buck. Connecticut. Yep. Chris Zagger, his 8-year-old son, shot his first deer, so congratulations to him. Uh, I have his – oh, his name is Bo. I forgot. Bo, Bo Zagger. Oh, yep. out of – out of Ohio. Out of Ohio. And, uh, Bo, we got a T-shirt coming your way too, buddy. Um, Steve Pyra got us. He actually spot and stalked the buck with his bow to fill his second buck tag. Um, Josh Luck with his Kentucky public land buck. That was a hammer. That was a hammer. Yep. And then uh, Corey Smith with that big, thick-horned archery buck out of New York, and then he turned around and posted up another one with his rifle the other day. So, And he's headed off to Ohio as we speak, actually, before the rifle he, season starts up. So, Yeah. So, so. Some good and, ones. Uh, yeah, some good ones. And like I said, I got a bunch more, but we're just mm. going to hold off and save them for the next episode. But keep for, them coming. Congratulations to everybody, and uh, we really enjoy seeing all these posts. Absolutely. It's absolutely amazing. If you guys aren't on the group, like I said, get on over to the group. Uh, for you guys that aren't on our YouTube, subs- you want to get over there and subscribe, hit the notification button. we got a couple of cool things coming on there. Uh, also, the iTunes guys, uh, make sure that you give us a five-star review. And, you know, always just spread the word and tell your friends. We'd re- really appreciate it. Well, what do you think, man? Let's see what our good buddy Tracy Breen is doing over there. I love it. Let's do it. All right. Let's go. All right, we're back on the phone with Tracy Breen. How are you, man? Good. How are you guys today? Oh. You getting after it out there in the woods? <laughs> yeah, we were trying to anyways. it was. It's The rut's starting to kick off here, and we're starting to see a lot of deer movement. How about yourself? Uh, it's definitely picking up. Um, you know, every year it happens a little different, but uh, the weather's been warm, and that's kind of slowed things down. But the last few days, you know, um, seeing deer during daylight and and here in michigan where i'm from there's a lot of hunting pressure so you know the rut's on when you're seeing bucks during the day because it just most of the time that doesn't happen they're more like ghosts yeah are you seeing that it's kind of a couple days behind like 10 to 14 days you know i think i think warm weather definitely slows things down but you know uh over the years in my magazine writing and things i interviewed a lot of the 
deer biologists around the country, you know, Grant Woods and some of those guys, and the, and they always said this to me, and it's always stuck with me. It doesn't matter how hot it is, those bucks are going to breed does, right? I mean, yeah. it's not like one year, late May, you don't see fawns on the ground, June, May. Uh, you're always going to see fawns coming at the same time, and that means the rut's basically happening at the same time. I guess what happens, I think, with the warmer weather that really hurts us hunters is if it, if it's warm, those bucks are just going to move at night. Right. Uh, you know, they're just going to breed does and chase does at night when it's cooler, and they're going to, you know, stay bedded more during the day. But, you know, I, I'm noticing just with everybody I work with, you know, big bucks are dying even if it's 70 degrees, you know. Mm-hmm. It just makes it a little bit harder, and you just got to work a little bit a little bit harder. Yeah, absolutely, and it's it's a bummer, but, you know, it's been that way for a few years now where you just have warm days in, in October and November, and you got to deal with it. Yeah, you just you hear all these things on social media and stuff, and everybody kind of talks about it, and, oh, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit behind or it's slow or this or that, but, I mean, that's that comes with it. I mean, 2020 was probably down the same route that we were dealing with, you know, this day and age. And if you look, like, like I said, I, I can't stress this enough, just dealing with all the biologists, come the end of May, you're going to see fawns, right? right. And so if there, if there was ever truly a delay, you'd be like, oh, man, we're not seeing any fawns. I wonder why. Well, it'd be because the rut was delayed. Well, you don't really see that. You know, I mean, it's mm-hmm. just it, it's all triggered by daylight for the most part, you know, and, and the lack of daylight. And it, it kind of happens year in and year out the same way. It's just when we, we never want to blame ourselves for our lack of success or anything like that. So we, we have a tendency to go, well, the rut was a little slower this year or this, that, or the other. And it, you know, they might be moving at night, but they're still breeding does. Right. They still got to do what they got to do. It's just, it's just, yep. that's just nature in itself. Tracy, I have a question for you while we're on the topic. Um, you mentioned the, the daylight, how that triggers the rut. Um, do you have any opinion on how the timing of the full moon around that same time like do you think so, that affects so, the so here's a um an interesting thing now i'm no expert on it but over the years i've written a lot of articles on that but i always interviewed the experts so so here's a i don't really have a hard answer for you but here's what i'll say so the kind of the father of modern day moon phase was jeff murray and jeff mm-hmm. murray developed the moon guide yep uh, now, the Moon Guide, I believe, is now owned by Adam Hayes because Jeff Murray died of cancer, and his wife, Corey, uh, they were actually very, they were good friends of mine. She sold it to Adam Hayes. So Jeff was a diehard Moon phase. I actually, the nickname I gave him was Dr. Moon, you know, Mr. Moon, and um, that's what I referred to him as. So he had this Moon dial, and many people that I interviewed over the years swore by that Moon dial. They would hunt strictly based on that moon dial and the phase of the moon. The flip side is Charlie Alsheimer, who was a world-renowned wildlife photographer. He had 40 acres and a high fence in New York. He believed in moon phases as well. His theories were the exact opposite of Jeff Murray's. They actually fought back and forth kind of about, you know, how it did affect deer and when they were on their feet. Now, the flip side is, and I, and I won't mention which app it is, 
but I used to work for a hunting app that was one of my clients, and they were trying to get a deer biologist to come on board and add a moon phase component to their app. And, and I connected them with Dr. Grant Woods. And Dr. Grant Woods, who is probably the best-known deer biologist on the planet right now, said he had looked at miles and miles of data, like printouts after printouts after printouts of moon phase data. And basically, he said it doesn't really impact, you know, deer in the way they move. Hmm. Now, and to the point where, and, and you got to realize, like, money is what makes the world go round in a lot of ways. They were, they were offering to pay him a considerable amount of money. And he said, nope, I'm not going to do it because I, I don't believe that it really impacts deer movement that much. He said, if you look at all the data. Now, obviously, the, the moon phase people, you know, that's like calling their mama ugly, right? I mean, there's, there's people get really upset when whatever theory they believe to be true is, is, you know, thrown out by a biologist or some other guy. I think there's some truth to it probably, but it's not near as impactful as some people believe. But once again, I, I'm no expert, but over the years, I interviewed all the experts and told their stories. I know Jeff Murray, you know, lived and died by it, you know, and if you type his name into Google, you'll see all kinds of stuff about it. That's awesome. That actually makes a lot of sense, honestly. I mean, because everyone talks about moon phases and, and, you know, the sun and this, that, and the other thing, but there's like no, I mean, I know there's a ton of data behind it, but, you know, everyone has their own beliefs. Now, does a big, does uh, having been with outfitters full of camps, like for instance, one of my clients is an outfitter in Pike County, Illinois, and and I guarantee you this week right now, there's probably 50 or 60 guys sitting in his camp, and if we have a full moon, absolutely you're gonna you're gonna see that the deer feed all night, and maybe the morning hunt was fairly slow, um, but banking your all hunt on moon phases which some people do you know i probably wouldn't do it right yeah you answered my question actually more than i expected but i think what i was more curious about was the timing of the rut like you you touched on it a little bit ago about how it's triggered by the amount of daylight so i was yep. curious if that full moon around that rut phase uh affected the rut as far as you know like we all noticed like walking into the stand this morning i didn't even need a flashlight because the moon was so bright i don't think that affects the rut probably much but once again i'm no biologist right. but right. most biologists would tell you it's the lack of daylight that's what triggers you know that's what triggers a lot of it just like the increase in daylight is what triggers turkeys gobbling and the peak of gobbling in the spring mm-hmm mm. And, and it's, photosynthesis is on, on the yeah, same thing. It's, as all, it's all about daylight, lack mm -hmm. thereof, you know. Um, so, I, I mean, if you look back, I, I um, whether it's Lee Likoski, whether it's Bill Winky, whether it's Grant Woods, you know, most of these famous deer hunters, I've, I've had the privilege and honor to interview all of them for magazine articles over the years. And I can tell you, you know, November 1st, 2nd, 3rd through the 15th, 16th, 17th. I mean, that's, that's game on. That's go time. That's when they're, they're killing big bucks. If I talk to outfitters, you know, that I've hunted with over the years, um, same thing. You know, they all know it's that first week of November. 
Halloween is kind of the kickoff, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but those first couple of weeks of November are really, really important. Um, for my own podcast, I interviewed Bill Winky, who is the founder of Midwest Whitetail. Um, he's saying this year, based on his data, you know, November 15th is probably the peak of the rut. So it's pretty much, you know, give or take a day or two mm-hmm. the same every year. Absolutely. Well, I, we appreciate that info, information, honestly. Um, and I know we kind of got crazy with it, but I definitely want to introduce you. So why don't we turn the key, man? Let's get this thing underway. Why don't you tell everybody who you are, where you're from, and what you do, Tracy? Okay. Uh, so Tracy Breen is my name. Uh, freelance outdoor writer and marketing consultant in the hunting industry is how I make my living. 44 years old, and um, it's what I've done the majority of my adult life. So kind of knee-deep in it every day. That's crazy, and it seems like you've definitely been wrapped up in it, like you, you've been saying since the beginning on, on how you've interviewed this person or wrote for this person. How did it really start for you? Where did where did this all kick off, Tracy? Well, you know, um, when I was a kid, I had a dream. You know, every kid has a dream, and this really was my dream. Um, so when I was a teenager, I started writing and submitting articles uh, to magazines, and then in my early 20s, um, I actually connected with a outdoor ministry called God's Great Outdoors that had a nationally syndicated radio show and I was editing their online magazine and then I started getting published in national publications at that age. Um, I have cerebral palsy and I would often write about kind of overcoming those obstacles to hunt and that kind of opened doors and you know before I knew it I was um, hunting all over and writing for, you know, all the magazines that when I was a kid, you know, I read cover to cover, whether that was North American Whitetail or Outdoor Life or Peterson Bowhunting, Buckmasters, um, pretty much most of the hunting magazines that are out there, I've written for it at one point in time. And then that kind of opened doors into the marketing world that because I had learned how to write, I was also writing press releases for companies and, and you know, one thing led to another and, and I started helping kind of launch brands or taking established brands and bringing them to the next level. Um, so, yeah, it's it's been a been a wild ride for sure at what point did you really kind of like was the I made it moment like did you realize like I'm, <laughs> I'm actually living my dream here you know when you're able to walk away from the day job I guess you could say and even though I was in my early 20s when I was able to do that like when I'm every day writing a magazine article and, and submitting that to publications and having the check show up in the mailbox and and making the house payment, so to speak, with that money. Um, that was kind of an aha moment, and I was in my mid-20s probably. Um, late 20s is probably really when I started to pitch myself because I was being invited on hunts all over the place. And, um, you know, by the time I was 35 years old, I had hunted. And right now, if I were to add them all up, it's somewhere between 30 and 35 states that I've hunted in. Wow. And, and a lot of those hunts are do-it-yourself hunts, but many of them early on were, you know, filming and, and hunting with many of the top brands and magazines and things like that in the industry. And I don't consider myself an amazing hunter or an amazing writer. Um, I just really have a strong work ethic, I think. And as I tell my kids all the time, 
work ethic can overcome most obstacles in life. You don't have to be the best, but if you outwork everybody, you'll probably succeed. Right. Yeah. We've been pushing that a lot lately. (laughs) That's a huge thing that we push all the time, honestly. You know, I mean, like a podcast type of situation, like there's no one telling you, right? Hey, you got to do a podcast today. It's on you to have the grit, have the grind and, and work hard and, get after it even when you'd rather be doing other things. And that's absolutely how I was able to make it. You know, I was just pumping out articles left and right, whether they were, whether I was getting paid 50 bucks a piece or 500 bucks a piece or anywhere in between, if someone was willing to pay me to write, I was doing it. Mm-hmm. We have a, we have a saying it's, 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 a, it's called 10 percenter and that's only 10% of people do a hundred percent of the work. And that's you know we all live by that honestly that you ha- you want to stay in that ten percent realm to kind of to keep yourself succeeding even if it's in the deer woods or it's at work or whatever the case may be but you want to be a ten percenter. Absolutely, you know, and and I've actually written an article uh, many times. That was a subject that I, I wrote about a lot when I was younger. Was ten percent of the people kill ninety percent of the game? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. How long ago did you write that, Tracy? Yeah. <laughs> And that's absolutely true. Like if you were to interview whitetail guys or elk hunters out west or whatever, it's typically we all have that buddy, right, who, man, every year, whether things are slow or the weather's hot or cold or whatever, he's always coming home with a big buck. And that's because he puts the time in. He's got the game figured out. He's invested the time and energy to be the master of whatever it is he, he wants to be the master of, and he succeeds. It's it and and we we you want me to say it? yeah go ahead. Steve. Well, we, when we say when that happens, we say kill is going to kill. Because they're they're always going to figure out a way to to beat the odds or you know against the conditions or whatever it is. He's going to figure out a way to get it done when everybody else is just kind of chasing their tail. And a lot of it boils down to um, just time in the woods, right? It's mm-hmm. just time. Um, you know, I don't know if you guys ever followed baseball, but there's a guy, Derek Jeter, who is, you know, a household name, played for the Yankees, right? And if you read his story growing up, he said he wanted to play shortstop for the Yankees when he was eight years old. And he ended up doing that. And if you read his backstory, everyone around him will tell you he wasn't born with the talent. He worked his way to the top. And it's that way in hunting, obviously, as well, or fishing or, you know, whatever it is you're trying to achieve. Most goals are more achievable than people realize. It's that we are so easily distracted. That's but if you don't get distracted and you stay the course, uh, you absolutely can win. I, you know, and that's – I think there's a lot to be said for that, honestly. I think it's a lot deeper than that, too. I think that a lot of people – you know, could, could, could learn from that, honestly, that you don't need to be the best. You don't need that. You can be a Derek Jeter and you can, and you, as long as you work hard for it, you can earn it no matter what it is. Most people don't believe it. Now, granted, if I'm four foot two, I'm probably not going to make it in the NBA. Right. Or in my case, you know, having cerebral palsy, probably, probably not going to the Olympics. Right. I mean, you obviously got to keep it, you know, keep it in perspective, but as I tell my son, who does want to make a living in the hunting industry someday, that you know that's achievable. Right. Chase after it, get after it. Um, you know, most people don't chase those dreams 
because they don't think they're achievable, so they never take that first step. Like you take your podcast, there's there's tons of people who say, I'm going to have a podcast, and that's as far as it gets. The fact that you guys have plugged the microphone in and taken the next step is already eliminated 95% of the competition. Mm-hmm. And if you can make it past seven episodes, you've made it past ninety five percent of the competition. Uh, sure, yeah. It's a it's definitely a tough thing, as you know. It's tough to get content. It's tough to for writing content for anything. It's just it's tough. You have to go above and beyond and find it. It doesn't just fall in your lap. Yeah, for sure. It's definitely yeah, it's it's um, making especially making a living now having a side hustle in the hunting industry. Um, is fun and fairly easy to do to make a living does require an extra level of work ethic that a lot of people probably don't realize. I mean, it's just endless grind from daylight till dark. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you and then some, on. yeah, for sure. I, you keep, you keep going back on, on the subject of having cerebral palsy. Can you kind of explain that and, and what the struggles that you've been through throughout your career? Um, so I, I have a, what would be classified as a mild case. Um, as, as I age, it's certainly, um, gotten worse, but it varies from, you know, a mild case. You can walk and talk and do those kind of things. Um, all the way up to people who are wheelchair bound and, and sipping life from a straw and and everywhere in between. Um, mine is mild. I've had lots and lots of surgeries, um, it affects the right side of my body, and so my my right leg, my right hand um, don't work very well. And so as I've aged, the sad reality is I've I've wore out my good side, and so now my left side is starting to really wear out and making making life difficult. And I may be in a wheelchair someday. We don't we don't know. I never thought that would be a possibility, but. Um, as I age, I can kind of see that happening. I mean, last week, for example, uh, not looking for sympathy in any way, shape or form, but last week, uh, I was turkeying and in one day fell six times, uh, at one point was completely submerged up to my neck in a Creek that anyone else would have just completely walked through, you know, mm-hmm. and I lost my balance when I was halfway across and down I went, you know, took a swim, um, it is what it is, but uh, it's it's affected you know every aspect of my life. So if I can make a living in this industry, I always say to people, just about anybody can. Because if if you were to look at you know who's going to make it, so to speak, I would really be at the bottom of the list. And and has it has it caused problems in other hunts like that you could like it never it never has stopped you from going on a hunt. Uh, yes. I mean, it, it, I would say it has stopped me from going on hunts like, Oh, that's probably too difficult. Like I'm never going to be a sheep hunter, for example. Mm-hmm. And absolutely my mind is wired to be a sheep hunter. Like I'm a, I'm a hardcore guy. I like pushing myself to my physical limit, uh, climbing mountains to sh- chase sheep, never going to happen. Right. I've elk hunted multiple times. I've killed multiple elk. Um, like I said, I've hunted in 30-some states, including Alaska, and killed moose in Alaska and a lot of things. But um, I've mountain lion hunted out west, and unfortunately, that kicked my butt. Um, the older I get, the harder it is to get into tree stands. And um, 
getting difficult to help my kid hang tree stands. So it, it does absolutely um, impact my hunting and certainly my success rate. Okay, so if you go elk hunting in Colorado tomorrow, the success rate's higher than if I go elk hunting in Colorado tomorrow. I mean, it's just the way it is, and I've just had to, you know, deal with it. Um, I mean, I've hiked to the bottom of the Grand Canyon and back out in 2013 and camped in the bottom of the Grand Canyon, but here we are in 2022, not sure. I'm not sure I'd make it down and out. Do you think that it at its that it's helped you too, where you you just have that you have more of a willpower than some because you're oh, like absolutely. I am going to definitely do it no matter what. Yeah, I think as far as making a living doing what I do, um, early on in my career, I had a mentor say your ability to make a living as an outdoor writer has very little to do with your writing ability and everything to do with your ability to take rejection and have thick skin. Um, I have grit and willpower. Um, there's no question there. And so being born this way has, has made me, you know, have thicker skin and more mental willpower than most. Uh, I look at my own kids, you know, they, they don't have the, the grind and grit that I do. And, and they've grown up a lot, you know, with a much simpler upbringing than what I had to deal with, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a, it's like most things, right? A blessing and a curse. And it, hey, it it seems like it got you where you are today. So it's it's obviously a good thing, right? I mean, it's yeah. I mean, the the pain and suffering gets old. To be honest, mm-hmm. I mean, um, I'm in pain every day. And if I if I hunt today, I know that tomorrow's going to be bad. Right. You know but, what I mean? So, yeah, it's going to so put that, you down for a day or two, right? Yeah, yeah. So so the the joint pain, hip pain, all those kind of things. Tomorrow's going to be a rough day if I hunt today. Do I still hunt today? Sure. Um, but it's just, that's the, that's the downside of it. So what, so, so throughout your years of hunting, what, what do you think was probably the most amazing hunt? Oh man. Um, killing elk out West is probably right up there. Everybody Um, says that. (laughs) Yeah. I love elk hunting. Um, a moose in Alaska is another one that was pretty special. I've been on two mountain lion hunts. I haven't killed a mountain lion. Mountain lion hunting, believe it or not, is, is can be really, really difficult. But but a lot of fond memories from mountain lion hunting. Um, just being out west and in the mountains behind the dogs and all that kind of thing. It's just a classic western feeling. Um, I kind of fell in love with mules on a hunt uh, with the owner of Outdoorsman's, which is a, a Western backpack and tripod company out West. And, and they hunt with mules, with dogs. And I kind of fell in love with mules and have two mules on my own farm now uh, as a result of a line hunt. So, <laughs> you know, there, there's a lot of, um, a lot of amazing memories for sure. Looking back and hunting a lot of different States and, and realizing, man, this is, a lot of people dream of doing this, and here I am doing it. That's awesome. That's absolutely awesome. And what? So, what would be probably one of your biggest animals that you've ever taken? Uh, you mean as far as score goes? Yeah. You know, there really isn't. Um, I've never been really a trophy trophy hunter. Archery was always my thing, and, and hunting in general was difficult enough for me. Um, at, I never was that guy who just like, oh man, I'm holding out. Now there's been a few times 
that I did hold out, and most of the time I ended up with tag soup. Um, all coming out west, there was a few hunts where I could have shot smaller bulls, and I had already killed small bulls, so I was like, man, I'm going to hold out. And then I hold out and uh, pass some smaller bulls and go home empty. You know, given having cerebral palsy, I probably shouldn't, like, hold out for a monster because opportunities are rare in my situation. Um, So I I never was that guy like, oh, man, I'm going to hold out. Have I killed some Pope and Young animals? Yep. But there's nothing on my wall that's like, holy cow, that's just, that's a giant, you know. Um, Just wasn't my thing. Now, Now, my kid who works for me, uh, you know, and there's a lot of the shows that I work for and work with, you know, he's, he's bent on, you know, killing a booner someday and, and hopefully he does, you know, but there's, there's many people in this industry and, and people on the outside don't even realize this. Sometimes there's many people in the industry on TV who've never killed a boon and crocodile animal. Um, it just doesn't happen. There a lot of, a lot of guys are the masters of making a 150 look 180. Yeah, exactly. And and it's not and you you bring up a very valid point and I'm glad that actually when I asked the question that you answered it like that because it's not that important. It's it's the memories that are made. Like it's it's the experiences. It's the it's what you make of a trophy. A booner is what you make of it. You know what I'm saying? Like what what I think is a booner is different than what the book says is a booner, right? Like that's yeah. any memory made of a good deer or a good elk or a good cat or a good bear that's a booner in my opinion you know i think it's probably means more than a booner sometimes the the interesting thing having been in the industry as long as i have now is i've seen kind of things shift you know and like you look at some of the the lee and tiffany's of the world and the breweries of the world all great people hats off to them uh for doing what they do but they rose to stardom because of killing giant deer and now it's kind of full circle and everything goes through that in, in life really and in marketing trends and things where then people get kind of upset that they're killing big animals like that. So then they decide, well, I'm going to just go chase critters on public land. And that's why I think you are seeing now, you know, all these shows pop up and people pop up that are there. They would almost rather kill a four point on public land than a 180 inch deer on private. And, and that's happened because, yeah, there's been a lot of people kill giants and it's not always about, you know, the, the inches on their head. And so now we've come full circle and people are focusing more on, you know, killing an average deer on public land. And that can be, uh, I, I border 6,000 acres of public ground where I live. So you can walk out my door and there's thousands and thousands of acres behind my house and, and killing a buck, any buck on that public land is probably harder than killing a 160 inch buck on private land in Kansas. Wow. So I'm glad you brought that up. Cause me and Trev talk about that a lot. And I'm, I'm curious your take on it. Um, with the whole trend, you know, went back like with TV and DVDs and all that stuff. It, it was a lot of outfitter hunts for a long time. And then it kind of went towards that, like grow your own deer on your own private farm and food plots and, and all that stuff. And, and like you said, the trend now is uh, DIY public land hunts. Do you think we'll stay in this trend for a while? And what would be your prediction as far as where, where we go from here? 
You know, I, I nobody knows where you go from here, but as a marketing guy, I'm always looking at that, right? Like, what is next? Who who knows? Uh, a, a trend that I'm asked a lot, or a question I'm asked a lot, is um, I've I've killed a fair amount of animals on the ground without a blind. For me, that was done out of necessity because getting in tree stands was hard. Um, I have seen that trend kind of take off. Like we go from tree stands on public ground and now saddle hunting mm-hmm. is a big, big thing. John Eberhardt was kind of the father of saddle, modern day saddle hunting. And, and I've interviewed him a gazillion times. Uh, back when I interviewed him the first time, probably early 2000s, he was the only dude in a saddle. And everybody thought that was the most ridiculous way to hunt in the world. And now... I bump into guys, you know, saddle hunting on public ground all the time. And I think maybe what's next is hunting from the ground with no blind. That'll kind of up the ante, make it even more difficult, you know. Um, but will we swing back to private? I don't know, because I, I do think this public land thing is going crazy. Mm-hmm. And now when you go on public land, there's more hunters than ever. Mm-hmm. Where before I, before I think... Everyone was knocking on doors or leasing ground, trying to get on private ground, trying to get a good buck. Well, once it become acceptable, it's sad that we even have to have a conversation like this, but once it became acceptable to shoot a 60-inch six-point on public ground, when that became cool, well, now everybody, you know, flocked to the public ground, so to speak, and now now there's lots of pressure on public ground. I, I see it here. Um, there's way more pressure around me than there was 10 years ago. And I think one of the other things that that makes the public land have a lot more pressure is the tools that are are available to people. Uh Onyx, Hunt Stand. Oh yeah. There's no yep. there's no more, you know, like when we were kids and probably when you were you were younger, you had your little honey hole and you never saw anybody there. You know, like that's kind of where it started. We had our spot or your tree stand. You would never see anybody there. Those those times of, of having a honey hole or your hot spot is no longer because it's so it's so easy for somebody to just look on a map and go, Oh, that's that's a good spot. I need to go and check that out. Yeah. And really there is no place off limits now, right? And so uh before a lot of people might not know about this certain piece of public ground, but with Onyx, oh man, look at there's a thousand acres of public ground. Oh, there's got to be a hidden honey hole in there, and then they go there. <laughs> you know, there's six cars parked at the trailhead, right? Yep. And then that place, that place gets a lot of pressure. Um, and, and then sadly, I do think what's caused some of the public land pressure is just hunting is out of this world expensive, mm-hmm. right? I mean, uh, leasing ground. You can't knock on people's doors and get permission anymore. You know, I mean, it's it's impossible to do. The ground's either leased or owned by, you know, a wealthy deer hunter or whatever. And hats off to a wealthy guy for owning hunting ground. I, I'm not bitter towards any of those people. But if you look at the progression of our society and you look at Europe, Europe has always been kind of ahead of us in a lot of things. And if you look at Europe, only the wealthy hunt private ground. That's the way it is. It, 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 you're very right where it's gone to and that white-collar game. We're headed that way. And so if you're an average Joe punching a press down at the factory, you know, making just an average wage, public land is, is the way you're going to do it. And then the growing trend of it's cool to eat what you kill, you know, 
um, that makes it even more fun to go on public land, even and kill a doe, and then you know post it on social media and show your buddies and you know show the hamburgers the next day. And so there's a lot of things that impact all these trends, but the public land thing. I always think all the data says that there's less hunters, right? That the numbers are going down. Um, so it might be 20 years before we see a whole pendulum swing where there's less hunting on public ground. But for the here and now, there's certainly more pressure on public ground than there's ever been, I think. Mm-hmm. The other thing that you see a lot, you had brought up a point where it's it's acceptable to go shoot a doe and stuff, but that camaraderie of deer camp has really started to come back. I, I'd imagine in Michigan too. Uh, I know we see it in the in the northern part of of New England, um, where there's a lot more people going to deer camp on the weekends with their friends and family, and like that was, you know, that's what we did as kids, you know. But it's it seems that that's starting to come back, which is phenomenal. Yeah, I mean, I I I visited one of those camps just a few weeks ago. Actually, I I was just invited there by a friend, and I I wasn't hunting. I just went there. And their goal was, you know, within the first few days, just kill a doe so they would have meat for the camp, mm-hmm. you know. And and that's kind of a cool concept, right? We're going to go kill a doe, and heck, everybody's going to, by the end of the week, that thing will be gone. And everyone will have eaten it. And, yeah, there's a, there's a lot to be said for that. I, it, it was. I just remember all the old timers would play cards half the time, and they would drink, wake up, drink coffee, and cook food, and play cards all day. I don't even think there was really much hunting. I mean, other than the couple of guys would go out for a couple of hours, but for the most part, it was just good camaraderie <laughs> yeah. of guys hanging out, D- drinking, drinking, eating, and, and playing cards. The old joke that I've heard a thousand times <laughs> about deer camp, right, was that a <laughs> that a husband went home and he said to his wife, "Hey, where did you?" I couldn't find my socks. Where did you, why didn't you pack me socks? Like you said, you were going to. And she's like, I put those in your rifle case. It's <laughs> <laughs> <is> so true. <laughs> Got so there you go. <laughs> That's deer camp in, the, in an egg shell. Right there. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome! But that's—it's so nice to see, honestly, because I was scared for for such a long time because everybody was so trophy driven. So it's nice to see something like that—that that they aren't anymore. That it's—it's just—it's—it's it, for what it really is, honestly, meant to be. It seems like we have two camps now. We do have the trophy driven guy, and there's nothing wrong with that. Like I said, I've I've certainly um, made a living telling stories of big bucks. I've made a lot of money off of big, big bucks. So I'd be a hypocrite to say, you know, that's bad, bad, bad. But we do seem to have two camps, you know, like the people that are just totally fine shooting a little buck and they're proud of it. And then we have the guys who are trying to grow huge deer and they're not going to let an arrow fly unless they think that deer is, you know, four and a half, five and a half years old. Um, And so maybe we're in a perfect place, right? Because camp A and camp B, seem to get along all right and, and do whatever you want to do. Mm. There's a fine line there, though, like especially well for us talking and, and for you writing. Talking big bucks is the cool thing to do. Like Everybody wants to talk big buck tactics and scouting and tracking down the big buck and, and getting that target buck you're after. But there's definitely plenty of people out there that just want to talk about just being more successful on a hunt, whether it be a smaller buck or, or does to fill the freezer. It's just not the, 
the cool thing to write articles about or talk about on a, yeah, on a you're, microphone. Yeah, you're not you know? going to. Uh, I'm not going to. I can tell you from 20 years of writing, I never published uh, a story on you know Bubba's four point. I mean, it just exactly. Um, yep that that wasn't that wasn't sexy. You know, no uh, people do do want to see the big buck and. You know, everybody names their deer now and all those kind of things. It does seem Um, like people are becoming more interested in that kind of stuff. Slowly, you know, back to basically everything that you've been saying. But it's it's trending that way, but I don't think we're quite there yet. Yeah. No, it's it's, but it's good to see. It honestly is very good to see. I I I I totally agree because what what that honestly does is the newcomers it keeps them more comfortable. You know, they're not ashamed. I guess that's the cool thing is there was a time where you'd be ashamed to show your buddies a picture of a small Mm -hmm. buck. And there isn't as much of that anymore. You know, like, hey, if you killed it and you were happy and your heart was pounding when you let the arrow fly or pulled the trigger, then hats off to you. Yeah, absolutely. So, Tracy, are you still freelance writing full time? Uh, Not so much now. I kind of... um, I would say pick and choose my projects, you know, so there's, I, I will write, you know, a few articles each year for editors who I'm friends with. Um, you know, I recently did an article on Matthews archery turning 30 years old and interviewed the, the founder of Matthews cause he's a good friend of mine. Uh, I did an article for bow hunting world here a month or so ago on a guy who killed a sheep out in, out in Utah um, I have an Upland article I'm working on right now for Covey Rise magazine. Um, so I kind of pick and choose my projects, and, and the majority of my living is made off of marketing and PR. Now, that said, in the heyday of my writing, I was publishing 200-plus articles a year. Wow. Um, and then just as the, as the marketing and PR side started to take more and more of my time, um, and, and quite honestly was – uh, more lucrative. Um, I just, you know, was writing less and less. So now I still write press releases. I do write some blogs and uh, TV commercial scripts and things like that. Um, I'm a writer through and through. I'm kind of a creative mind, but it, but it certainly has changed. Um, the writing isn't isn't uh, the majority of my income like it once was. And 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 do you see that like? Because, like, when we were kids, we would go and get a magazine. I mean, mm. I, I would wait for, for magazines to come out, Peterson, Bowhunting. I mean, whatever yeah. the case may be. Do you see that, that that trend is dying because of social media? Oh, yeah, I think uh, – I, mean, I mean, to be honest with you, truthfully, one of the reasons I shifted was I saw the writing on the wall that magazines were going away. Now, all those magazines that I've talked about and that you've mentioned are still around but they don't buy as much content from freelance writers and the pay hasn't went up. So, so one of the amazing things about the written word and, and the written word in a published magazine is outdoor life paid more for a magazine article in 1975 than they did in 1985. And they paid more for it in 1985 than they did in 1995. And they paid more for it in 95 than they did in 2005. And so all these magazines were paying less and less and less as the cost of li- living and expenses went up and up and up. And so the writing on the wall was, it, it became harder and harder to really make a, a good living. 
I didn't want to just make a living and, and scratch out, you know, an existence. I wanted to make a good living. And early on, I could. I made really good money writing and publishing articles. But as time changed and the Internet took off, uh, that whole business model kind of got thrown on its head because 30 years ago, if you had a bow, if you had a broadhead, if you had an arrow, if you had a gun, you advertised in a hunting magazine. So a hunting magazine was 150 pages, 200 pages thick, full of ads. So those magazines had lots of money to pay writers. Well, as the world changed, the Internet comes along, and you start advertising on the Internet, you start advertising on TV, you start advertising on Facebook and Instagram and all those places, and those magazines got thinner and thinner and thinner, and the amount of readers has went down, down, down. Hmm. So you are at you are at a time where there's very very few full time freelance writers in the hunting industry. There's always been very very few. I would say even at the height of my writing career, there was probably less than a hundred full time outdoor writers. There's probably you know a couple dozen now. Most of them have side hustles of some kind. That's how they make ends meet. Some of them have some of the best writers I knew when I was younger aren't even writing anymore. You know, they went and got a day job. Jeez. And Luckily, I changed, you know, I saw the writing on the wall and started doing other things in the industry um, and shifted and learned marketing and social media and, and you know, the podcasting world and the TV world and help launch TV shows and do lots of things. Um, otherwise, you know, I might be asking you if you wanted fries for that. Yeah. <laughs> well, so. yeah, I, it, but there's no there's no other way for writers to do anything. I mean, like blogs and stuff like that. Like that's you can, not... you can write for blogs, but I mean, just to be quite frank about it, um, w- when I was you know 30 years old and writing for a national magazine, um, you were probably I was probably the average article was somewhere between four and six hundred dollars uh, a piece. Okay. And the average blog, and I'm not going to throw anybody under the bus, but, you know, some of the top websites or whatever out there that are buying blogs, many of them are paying a couple hundred dollars a piece, and some of them are paying 50 to to $100 a piece. Wow. And so the only way you can really make money now, and I did this for a while until I shifted, was you had to be a machine. You had to publish hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of those in order to make real money. And then it, but that's a hustle constantly all you're doing is Constant. writing. And that is that is the thing. I mean, you and it, it did help develop my work ethic and get me to where I am today. Like as a freelance writer, a couple things, you learned how to work hard because you were working nonstop. I mean, it was, you know, 12 16 hour days, and then on top of that, probably one of the greatest gifts that writing gave me was learning that a deadline is a deadline. And we live in a society now where people are just like, well, I'll try to get that to you tomorrow or maybe next Wednesday or whatever. And a, a print deadline is a print deadline. Like, we're going to press next Wednesday. We need your article today or else, you know. And and so it did teach me to work under pressure, taught me to be creative and, and write good stuff. Um, you know, last minute if need be, I kind of – build a reputation as a guy editors could go to last minute. So if they had someone not get an article in on time, they could call me and say, I used to do this a lot for outdoor life. The editor would call me and say, you know, I need, 
I need an article tomorrow morning on this. And it was 3 p.m. on a Monday, and he needed it at 8 a.m. on Tuesday. And away I'd go. And then it was that. and then, But that's how you grow your name. Yeah. I, that's um, – the the hustle and bustle of New England is like that, and I, I think that that's one thing. I mean, like a lot of my Midwesterner friends have a tougher time with me because of that, because it's the hustle and bustle. It's it's there is no time clock. You don't end. You don't stop. You just go, and you, everything needs to be done yesterday. You know, that's I mean, the Yankee in you, right? Yeah, I mean, exactly. I, yes, yeah. <laughs> and they can't handle it. You know, you get south of the Mason Dixon, and people just kind of lackadaisical. You know, well, I found uh, we're off on a rant, but it is kind of funny that you mention that because one of the things once you become a writer, well, then you have this platform and people want to then hear you speak. And over the years, I've I've spoke at hundreds of wild game dinners at churches, and a lot of those are in the Bible Belt in the South. And I would get off a plane, and someone would pick me up at the airport, and the moment they would hear my northern accent, they would say, "Oh, you're a Yankee." <laughs> You're a Yankee. And then they would go on a rant about mean Yankees. You know, like they just can't, they, you know, and, and it really does boil down to in a lot of ways, um, just like what you described. I mean, Yankees are all business all the time kind of mm-hmm. thing. Not saying it's good or bad. Uh, I, I wish I had a little more of that Southern style in me where I'd be fine sitting on the back porch drinking some sweet tea. Uh just not wired that way. Nope. No. Nope. You can't. You can't sit in it. You know, friends will be like, "Hey, did you see this hunting show or that hunting show?" And I'm like, "At what time did I sit down to even have the time to watch that hunting show or that? You know, read that magazine article? It's just not. It's not really wired into us." Yeah. I I do. I want to switch gears just a little bit. I know that we we both um kind of work with this company is is Huntworth. Um, and kind yeah. of some of the, the, the good things that they have coming on. I, I want to talk about the heat boost because today I was directly affected by that and how how crazy that garment actually is not made for conditions that are over 30 degrees. Would you say the same? Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends how cold-blooded or warm-blooded you are or whatever, but it's certainly uh, heat boost has uh, been launched here recently by Huntworth Clothing to be their cold-weather garment. Uh, this is our first fall with it out, and uh, I had the privilege of testing it last winter as well as many of the pro staff guys, and um, I actually used it in northern Michigan ice fishing um, <coughs> where it was single digits, and it kept me, you know, toasty warm. And what I tell everybody, you know, if it's 45, 50 degrees and you've got a long hike to the tree stand, do not wear a heat boost. Um, but if you have a long sit in cold weather, uh, there's nothing like it, and that's at the base of it is graphene technology, uh, which is a unique yarn that's kind of woven into the garment that helps you retain your body heat, and it kind of traps the heat uh, that your body's given off without adding bulk, and that's an important thing. You know, many times we have hunting clothing that is, you know, you look like the Michelin Man when you're walking out into the woods, and it's hard to draw your bow. Uh, with this technology, it's you know much more lightweight, easy to wear, easy to hike and walk in. Um, but, yeah, if, if you're, you know, hiking several miles onto the public land, you better have it in the backpack. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I learned that the hard way today. I used it in the sit this morning. It was like 28 degrees, and I was toasty warm. And then after I had got out and went tracking a deer with a friend, 
and I put on some miles and I regretted every second of it. And then when I had, even when I got home, I was still really heated and I had been sitting in the car, you know, with the windows down and I still had a ton of heat in me sweating and I'm and just like never went away. I was, I was just mind blown because we're still kind of learning, you know, all of the Huntworth gear. So we, we'll, me and Steve will text back and forth with each other like, hey, man, what, <laughs> what should we wear today? You know, did you try this? Did you try that? What layer did you do? You know, yeah. like still kind of learning, you know, what works well with what. You know, the cool thing about that technology, though, is being from the New England area or me in the upper Midwest, much of our hunting season is in cold weather, right? Mm-hmm. And you can either sit home and sit out or, you know, wear a whole bunch of layers or some warm garments. And, and that's what, you know, the heat boost allows you to do is just stay longer, you know, in the woods and, and hunt harder. And, and there's a lot of people right now, you know, we're getting reports of guys using it, you know, and it's really going to show here in the next 30 to 60 days with the late season. You know, there's going to be a lot of people successful at filling tags because they're able to hunt in that super cold weather. And, and I know that sounds like a a marketing ploy and and I do handle a lot of the marketing for Huntworth um but it is kind of a game changer like the first time I put on the gloves I mean they were prototypes and I put on the gloves and really really quickly I could feel it was almost like there was a heater in that glove mm-hmm. and and you can feel you know and it's trapping the heat that your body gives off um and and that's important side note the gloves and the hats they have heat boost technology available in them as well, and we all have fingers that get cold and toes that get cold, and and uh, I they don't have socks yet. <laughs> Are um, they working on it? I need socks. <laughs> but, Chase, but I my said feet to him, I actually said to him today. I said to Karen today on the phone. I, I said, you know, I'm getting a fair amount of people asking about socks, <laughs> and uh, hopefully someday. Yeah. Uh, but right now, you know, our hands get cold really easily. You know, and and. Their heat boost gloves certainly are the answer there. But as, it, as all their clothing, you know, and you know now that you've worn their clothing, they make an amazing garment for a really good price, and that's kind of where they hang their hat. Get more for less. <laughs> yep. It's so true. Absolutely. It's so true. And a lot of people think, oh, you're, you're just saying that. But, no. you know, you go look at Sitka, you go look at Kuyu or First Light, they all make great clothing. Hats off to all of them. Um, but the Huntworth stuff really has a price point that, you know, just about anyone can afford. I, I just, I, I'm so mind blown, honestly, with the quality of it. You know, like we, you walk through briars and that's what I did today because you want to just put it through the test, right? And just see what it's all about. And I just, I was just mind blown. I, you really, I mean, we could talk about it all night, but I don't think it's that important. I mean, to, to, to kind of beat, beat a dead horse, but like people need to try it. You need to try it for yourself because it does what it needs to do. It really, truly, honestly does. And the sad thing is, and like I said, I, and maybe you can call me a hypocrite for this, but the industry has gotten to a place where everything is expensive and marketing guys like me are marketing, you know, high end products and expensive things. And, and, you know, you look at a bow or a gun or boots or anything, they're just really expensive. Now, heck, a, a three-pack of broadheads is 50 or 60 bucks. Mm-hmm. So when guys walk into a store and they see a coat for 500 bucks, and then they look and see a Huntworth coat for, you know, 179 at first you're going to go, oh, man, there's just no way this thing's going to hold up, right? It can't be nearly as good as this one over here. But, but the truth is, it is. Um, and, and I'll never say to you that a 179 Huntworth coat is 
as good and has all the features as a $500 coat, but it's got three quarters of the features and three quarters of the quality for, you know, less than half the price. And for most guys, if you look at data, you know, most guys are hunting nine to 18 days a year, really. And do you need a $500 coat? Mm. And the answer is no. Yeah, but even some of us that hunt every single day, I would I would take that up against any piece of garment that I w- that I honestly own in, in my closet, and I think it would outwear it. I, I honestly do, and I wear it all I the mean, time. I was I was on a past um, Missouri Woods and Waters, and those guys are sponsored by Huntworth, and, mm-hmm. and um, they were big into Sitka. You know, mm-hmm. it's like I said, Sitka makes a good clothing. Sitka's out your way. I mean, the Gore people own Sitka now, and. And when Sitka first came out, uh, Gore-Tex actually flew me to their factory to see all that stuff. And it was a great time. I actually killed a buck in Maryland, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just crazy, the price point. And, you know, there's a lot of things that hold up as well that are a lot less money, you know. And I, and I think Huntworth kind of fits that bill, and that's why uh, they're growing the way they are. Absolutely. E- easy on talking about Maryland, though. That's that's <laughs> Nobody really knows about that. That's a him- hidden gem. <laughs> <laughs> it, it absolutely. I don't know how hidden it is now, but, no. but uh, you know, the, there's no question. Um, I don't think there's such a thing anymore. My son just asked me this the other day. He said, Dad, do you think there's such a thing as a sleeper state anymore? And I said, man, I don't know. I said, with the Internet. But, but Maryland is a sleeper state. The flip side is, though, um, there's very little public ground, right? And so mm-hmm. it's not like you're just going to show up there and, and walk onto a huge piece of public ground. I mean, that's what I, I noticed there is that, you know, it's largely managed property. Um, it, it's... Now, the cool, the cool thing was where I hunted, um, you know, they charged you by the day, which was kind of cool. Wow. So if you, wanted to hunt, if you wanted to hunt one day, it was this much. If you wanted to deer hunt five days, it was this much, you know, and if... If you only ended up hunting three days, well, you pay for three days and go home. So it was more or less a trespassing fee. Yeah. They were actually <laughs> really, really well known for waterfowl hunting, and that was mm-hmm. their niche. And we had this group coming from Gore-Tex, and, and uh, you know, they, they did some whitetail hunting, and, and you're right, they do have some good bucks there. It's, it's crazy. I, I didn't... I started hunting there two years ago, and the amazing, I mean, the turkey hunting, the Sika hunting, the whitetails, I mean, it's just flourishing, and I'm I'm going to get beat up for this, honestly, because I have a ton of friends that are in Maryland now, and if I they hear me talking about it too much, but there is so many giants in that state, it's not even funny. I couldn't believe it. I'm driving down the road to go Sika hunting, and like a 180 runs across, a true 180 runs across the road, and I'm like, where did yeah. that come from? And then a buddy of mine starts sending me pictures of his trail camera. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. What a crazy state. But, but there's not lots of public ground, though. No. Wouldn't you agree that that's kind of the downside, right? You're not going to just go walk <sighs> no. out and kill a giant. No, you're really not. And the public ground that you do find, honestly, is either underwater, so it's a sick of hunting thing, and there's a million and one people hunting it. So that's one of the probably one of the hardest p- things about it. It's definitely a white collar area where, and I'm mean, and I'm not cracking on them by any means, but it's the same thing as we were talking about before. Like everything is leased, everything is a farm. They know what they have there, so they 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 charge for it. You know, it's just like Osceola's in in Florida. Florida, yep. yeah. It's the same thing. They know what they have and they charge for it. 
And yep. I, I, you can't break them for that, you know. I mean, what? No, they're, they're it, doing their it, thing. it is what it, it is. What it is. Yeah. That's that's exactly it. Exactly it. Well, Tracy, I got one more question before we wind down here, man. And we ask everybody this, and and that that's what drives you outdoors. What's that? What drives you outdoors, Tracy? What gets me outdoors? Yeah. Well, yeah, uh, we've never talked about this, so you might have heard it on other podcasts. But really, what gets me outdoors, what flips my trigger, actually, is uh, turkey hunting with dogs, um, and that's wow. a sport that only takes place in the fall. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not legal in all states. Luckily, it is legal here uh, in Michigan. Um, and I've I've hunted turkeys with dogs in many states around the country. And there's probably only a few hundred of us that do it. It's kind of a, a dying breed. It actually was the original way of turkey hunting long. What a lot of people don't realize is turkey hunting in the spring didn't come about until the 60s, 1960s. And most people then were very adamant, very against spring turkey hunting. And most old timers that are really into fall hunting will tell you that, you know, killing a gobbler in the spring is kind of unfair. You know, they're easy to call in and, and a gobbler in the fall, he's much harder to call in. Um, and so how dog hunting turkeys goes is you train a dog uh, to break up a flock of turkeys the same way you train a coon dog to find a coon. And so they work out in front of me two to three, 400 yards. And when I hear that dog bark, it's actually breaking up the flock, separating the members of the flock from one another. And then you sit down at the break spot where they broke that flock up and call them back in. And the dog actually, uh, I cover up the dog with a coat. It lays there silently until the gun goes off. That's wow. amazing. And, and how do you go about training that dog? Uh, well, I mean, it's uh, both easy and complicated. All the dogs that I've had are, for the most part, are, are what it's called an Appalachian turkey dog. They've been bred that way in Virginia for over 100 years. And the interesting thing is if you go back to the origins of, of turkey hunting with dogs, there's actually a website, turkeydog.org, no joke. <laughs> um, wow. Turkeydog.org kind of dissects that. But back in the late 1800s, the only people that had turkey dogs were really the wealthy. Like it was a sport of kings and queens, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And they kept it pretty hush-hush, who had whose dog, and the breeding was done pretty hush-hush, and they didn't share dogs amongst themselves. But so an Appalachian dog, Appalachian turkey dog, was bred to bark on the break. Believe it or not, that's the most difficult thing. You can you can teach a dog to break turkeys. Um, getting them to bark on the break is the most difficult piece. And the only way you know a dog is breaking turkeys is if they're barking. Because a lot of times, like I said, they're three or four or 500 yards away from you. Um, but you start with a wing, you know, just like you do any bird dog. You hide a wing in the in the brush, you know, 50 yards away. When they find it, good boy. Then you go to 100 yards and then 150 and, and so on and so forth. And over time, I think really what makes an, a good dog an amazing dog is they realize a dog is a pleaser and they realize that's what dad wants. Okay. And so, you know, the first year I ever had a turkey dog, I was serious about it. This is 12, 15 years ago. And I, I took that dog all over the Midwest, anywhere I could, as far east as Pennsylvania. And I took him to Wisconsin and Ohio and just anywhere I could go that had, had a season and would take friends. So we'd fill lots of tags 
Well, at the end of that season, when a dog has killed just tons and tons of birds, you know, they realize, hey, this is what dad wants, right? I'm going to go find this bird, and, and, you know, two hours later, when I'm crawled under this blanket, I'm going to hear the gun go off, and then I go get to molest the dead turkey, you know? And when you end up with a really good dog, they're just convinced there's a turkey behind every tree, you know? I mean, that's just who they are, and, and they're always looking. I mean, I got one dog, you know, here with me tonight, if I say turkey out loud, I mean, she's she's whining and she's ripping down the door trying to get outside. She knows what that means. <laughs> That's awesome. I didn't, you know, you don't hear about it much, though, Tracy. No, Not a lot no. of people talk so, about it. So the downside is we have no voice, right? That's that's the scary thing is as turkey populations go down, fall seasons are starting to be eliminated. And, you know, it might be one of those sports that really does die that, you know, 20 years from now won't be legal. Hmm. That's sad to hear, honestly, especially if there's, yeah. there's a group of people that really love the sport and that's what they do. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's tough, man. Is there some kind of orga- organization or club or something like that that supports? Well, as I said, turkeydog.org is really the only one. And, it, you know, it's like 10 bucks to be a member. And like I said, there's, there's a few hundred of us around the country. Um, I've been on a lot of podcasts where that's all I talk about, you know, and every time I'm on one of those podcasts, um, I'll get an email from someone who's interested in wanting to do it. And it is unique. It's fun. It's kind of a connection to the past. Um, you know, a lot of people don't turkey on in the fall and it's, it's just a cool thing. And there's a lot of old timers that do it. And, and when I bought my first one, I bought it from, a guy by the name of John Byrne, who's now passed away, and he had Byrne turkey dogs, and he had a waiting list for them. He was so well-known for it, and I was on a waiting list for over a year, and and you are required to drive to his house. And, I mean, I drove 17 hours one way, you know, to pick up this little puppy in Virginia. And, and uh, I don't know, it's just there's this neat, nostalgic thing about it that it, it truly is uh, – you know, one of my favorite things to do, and I've I've gotten to hunt, you know, a lot of cool things, but um, taking my dog and going in the woods and listening to her bark at turkeys is, you know, right up there at the top. That's amazing. And the calling, obviously, is totally different. Yeah, like you're calling them back. And... Uh, yeah, you're doing kikis if you're calling in hens and poults, and, and believe it or not, a lot of people don't realize this. In the fall, a gobbler will yelp at you um, on the callback, and a gobbler will strut and gobble. But it's for a different reason. If, if I break in the fall, you'll have groups of gobblers by themselves, and then you'll have hens and poults. And if I break up a group of gobblers, they'll come back in and they'll strut sometimes and gobble because they're reasserting their dominance. There is a pecking order, right? And when they reassemble, they're going to reestablish that pecking order. And so you can have gobbling just like the spring. You can have strutting just like the spring. One of the big differences is, though, a lot of those gobblers in the fall, because a gobbler is fine being by himself when he gets broke up from his buddies, he's going to slip in silent. And sometimes it'll take hours. I mean, there's been times where we break a group of gobblers, and it's three, four hours or more before we ever hear a gobbler yelp or before we ever see a turkey. Wow. And you just know to just sit there and wait. Sit there and wait. Like all these old timers in Virginia and places like that, they'll, they'll tell you that for instance, these old-timers, when they reach the point where they can hardly hunt anymore, they'll have a younger guy who literally goes, you know, breaks up the turkeys. 
He goes back and gets his buddy at home, brings him back out in the woods. They make a blind out of sticks and limbs and brush and sit down and, and start calling. And it's, you know, three, four hours later before they hear a turkey. Or sometimes they won't even make a call. They'll just slip in. There's been a lot of gobblers that I've killed over the years. Like you just see a ghost, you know, you'll see his head in the brush for a tenth of a second. And you either, you know, you've got two seconds to take a shot or he's gone. Wow. That's I mean, I, lit- I literally had that happen two weeks ago where, I mean, I got busted and I didn't get a bird. I broke a group of gobblers and it was several hours after the break and it was a really windy, rainy day. And I thought I saw motion and, and I turned my head just a tenth of an inch and he was 25 yards away and he busted me. You know, he never made a sound. He just comes slipping in to check things out. Obviously, if it was a real turkey there, he would have hung out with it, and he saw me turn my head, and it was over. Wow, and, and they'll 100% come right back to the breaking? Yeah, so how, the reason that is, the way the way they're designed, you know, the way God designed them is, you know, if a coyote breaks them up, right, coyote coming in to grab a turkey, they all fly away, but then they reassemble at the place where they last saw each other. Wow. That's crazy. And, so they're definitely coming back there no matter what. Yeah. Now, is there times where you sit there and sit there and they never reassemble there? Yep. I mean, I, I've had it happen. They might reassemble a quarter mile away or they might get together the next morning, especially in the case of gobblers. They might get together the next morning, you know, because like, they're comfortable being apart. You break up a flock of hens with young, they want to find each other right away. And the truth is that's more fun than gobblers because there's lots of talking. There's lots of yelping and kiki and, and trying to find one another, you know. Um, but the gobblers are completely comfortable being on their own. Hmm. That's crazy. That's got to be a blast, though. It's just something different, it you know. It yep. just totally something different. You don't hear a lot about it. We'll have to do a podcast in the future if you get mm. the time. I'd love to sure. kind of dive yeah, into that. I think that would be kind of great, honestly. Yep. It really would. Well, Tracy, we really appreciate you jumping on with us. I know you're a busy man. You're probably writing something or got a ton of stuff going on. (laughs) For sure. But um, why don't you just tell everybody where they can find you and uh, maybe Uh, look up some of your stuff. Yeah, my my website, uh, if someone wanted to book me for a speaking engagement or whatever, is is tracybreen.com, T-R-A-C-Y-B-R-E-E-N.com. I do have a podcast that I do with Redneck Blinds. It's kind of hit or miss. If we got a big buck to tell the story of, we do. If we don't, we don't. It's We're certainly not as uh, diligent as you guys. That's called the drop time report. Um, but, yeah, you can just type – anyone can type my name into Google, and it'll pop up. If, if you want to see a turkey dog episode, uh, I was on Nick's Wild Ride uh, a couple years ago where we, we chased turkeys in the fall with Nick. He has a show on the Outdoor Channel, and uh, we did that in Ohio. So uh, – Anyone who's interested in watching that can kind of find it and, and see Turkey Doggin in action. That's awesome. Well, well, we'll definitely attach those at the bottom. Um, and, Tracy, once again, man, we, we really can't thank you enough for joining us. And for everybody else, thanks for taking the ride right here on the Outdoor Drive. Take care. Bye.